any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Welcome, everybody. Everybody out on the internet, wherever you may be listening to this, on YouTube, Twitter, elsewhere, or as a podcast on the Into the Impossible Podcast Network. Uh, welcome to you and to my friend, Professor Garrett Lewis. And there's no one I'd rather get into this controversy with, as our guest might say, than, than you, Garrett, uh, who's phenomenal thinker, a uh, esteemed colleague, and an eminent cosmologist, and uh, I'm just uh, delighted that you could join us to talk about these controversies. As you know, I talk quite frequently about the orthodox, but also some of the unorthodox things in cosmology. So first I want to ask you, what's life like on Friday, the, uh, the 2nd of September, down under? Oh, it's pretty good. Spring is arriving. Uh, it's warming up. It's looking very nice outside. Ah, fantastic. Yes. And what are the lottery numbers I should be playing on Friday? <laughs> ah, fortunately, <laughs> it doesn't work I, that I, way. It doesn't work that way, unfortunately. <laughs> well, it's a delight to have you here, and I thought we'd get right into it and uh, talk about this this uh, you know so-called alleged crisis and uh, panic that's taken over our field. I don't know if you are suffering from the panic uh, all the way down under, but um, but up here in the U.S. at least, it made quite a splash. I've been quoted in several different uh, venues, and um, and. One of the reasons I enjoy uh, speaking with you is I think that you're a, a sober voice of reason who, like me, uh, doesn't shy away from controversy and likes to uh, use it as a teachable moment, both for professionals, but also for the non-professionals, the lay audience that we serve by virtue of our outreach. And you've written so many wonderful books, and we had you on just this past uh, season. <clears throat> For your most most recent book about the where did the universe come from? I've got that in my bookshelf here. Um, and previously, you wrote a book with uh, Luke Barnes uh, about the steps that one would need to take in order to overthrow the Big Bang. And the title of that book was The Cosmic Revolutionary's Handbook. And I think that's a spectacular book for many reasons. The content is phenomenal, but also the kind of uh, rubric that one must apply when assessing claims either in support of or in claimed refutation of an existing paradigm. So I want to ask you, I don't know if I asked you that when, in the interview that you and Luke did, uh, it's almost two years ago now. I can't believe it. Uh, but um, can you summarize, why did you write that book, The Cosmic Revolutionary's Handbook? What was the purpose behind that book? Oh, well, Luke and I do an awful lot of outreach. And we also, you know, um, interact with people through various media. And th there's often you, somebody in the crowd who has a new idea about the universe. So they've, they've heard about the Big Bang and th there's aspects of it that they don't like. And so they've got their new theory, their new idea, their new hypothesis. And we found ourselves repeating ourselves over and over again about, right, that's a nice idea, but what does it predict? How does it deal with this issue and that issue? And how is it better than the current Big Bang picture that we have? And of course, the people with their ideas, they hadn't got past that first thing of, I've got my idea. So we decided that we would get uh, all this down and sort of lay out the plan of what it is you really need to do if you want to overturn cosmology. So that it was essentially to have something to point to to say, oh, this is what your idea should do, but also to get the process of science out there into the broader audience. Because I think 
There's a lot of cosmology books on the market, but not a lot of them talk about the process by which that those cosmological ideas turn into, you know, our understanding of the universe around us. So we wanted to make it less of a, look, this is cosmology and more of a, this is how you do cosmology kind of book. Yes. And I think what's so spectacular about that book, as well as your other books, is that you're not dismissive. You know, some of the our colleagues on Twitter have been less than kind uh, to Mr. Lerner uh, and uh, accused the cosmological community of furthering this censorship and the suppression of heresy and ad hominem attacks and some did call him names, and I've refused to do that. Um, and we're not going to comment on his uh, on his other projects, which involve uh, the quest for fusion, etc., except to say, when necessary, what the relevance or irrelevance is of the cosmological model that he's proffering towards the, um, the establishment of cheap, clean energy on Earth, which is, of course, a noble goal. Uh, but I think the conflation of ideas um, bears some scrutiny, although it won't be the dominant uh, portion of our conversation. And we might take questions um, online, even if uh, uh, I assume Eric will be watching, if not listening, he sent me an email uh, asking me to take a look at his most recent video, uh, which uh, claims to refute some of the claims that I made, that Dr. Becky made, Dr. Becky Smethurst, Anton Petrov made, Ethan Siegel made. Um, and so I've compiled a, a list of those individuals and their, um, and their uh, criticism of uh, Mr. Lerner, and his Big Bang Never Happened hypothesis. And you and I uh, put together a few slides to guide the discussion. And I'll post those slides if you're listening on uh, on audio podcast forms. Uh, you'll, you'll miss out on that. But I'll put a, a link to, the, to download in the show notes for this episode. Um, and I'll also do that in the video text description. For those of you not um, subscribed yet, please do subscribe to the channel, uh, Dr. Brian Keating. And so some of the... <clears throat> so let me queue up the... Uh, the video. Let me see if I can get that. Hopefully people can see this. Um, I will add us as inserts um, only uh, to not go completely crazy, but I will remove uh, the inserts. Uh, fear not folks out there. So hopefully uh, folks can see this online. Let's look. Yes, I can see this online so other folks can see it too. Okay, so um, Two of us have been talking about this for uh, for some time and uh, uh, offline, at least the the controversy and why it's useful to claim um, to push back on claims with uh, with respect and uh, you know with without uh, with absence of ad hominem attacks. I, I have to say I, I don't um, appreciate when debates are held like this. Now I. I'm not engaging uh, Mr. Lerner in a debate. I didn't invite him on this channel. He didn't invite me on his channel. Um, but uh, I think it's more important to uh, respond via this calm, you know, collected uh, format where he replied via a PowerPoint presentation. So let's respond to it in that format. Um, so uh, that being said, let us take a look at some of the uh, classical motivations for the Big Bang. And this is just taken from Ethan Siegel's post um, entitled, Has JWST Disproven the Big Bang? And really, this is just showing, we'll come back to, to Dr. Siegel's objections to Mr. Lerner's claims at the end, uh, when you and I also um, present some of our constraints uh, and, and criticism of the plasma cosmology or of the uh, non-expanding universe that he is offering. Um, we won't, uh, we'll start off by talking about support for the Big Bang, the evidence for the Big Bang, 
Then we'll move into the JWST findings. Um, and then we'll even touch upon some of Mr. Lerner's criticisms about the other so-called pillars of the Big Bang. I've made some videos recently about that as well. Um, and we will, of course, take on the claims made that definitively the Big Bang can be ruled out via classical um, uh, constraints and observations such as the Tolman test. So. I'll leave this slide up for a few more seconds, but basically there's abundant evidence for decades that the Big Bang model meets, and I think it's wise to quote from Jim Peebles, uh, eminent Nobel laureate and um, all-around wonderful individual, who also had a huge role in the establishment of the Big Bang and the measurement and interpretation of the CMB radiation as well. And that was um, uh, that was really no uh, no no secret. And he's saying uh, that in empirical cosmology, which is what we're trying to do here, uh, there should be a goal not to get explain every single observation, but instead to uh, to explain the most number of things with the fewest number of input assumptions. Recognizing this is a paper that he wrote, recently put out called Anomalies in Cosmology. So to Mr. Lerner's claim that no one's taking this seriously or taking any. Uh, criticism of the Big Bang, or my favorite is when people accuse me of making my money from the Big Bang. You know, I don't know about you, Garrett, but how much money do we make from uh, Big Bang, Big 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 Bang? Uh, very little. It's not like big oil. I wish that would be great. Um, in fact, Mr. Lerner is is uh, you know has every right to raise money for his uh, project, which is a fusion project, which he does in his video. So that's fine. But we don't get paid. There's no cabal or consortium uh, as as he seems to Im imply. So Peoples talks about by this, I mean empirical evidence that seems likely to disagree with what is expected from the previously accepted theories and ideas. An anomaly might prove to be a better, to give us better appreciation of the predictions of the theory we already have. And then he goes into uh, this 26 page long paper, which is phenomenal, and I recommend it to all my students and to even lay people. It's incredibly readable. I'll put a link to it in the show notes later on. Um, and so he's asking, what is the value of criticism? So criticism is to be valued and appreciated, um, uh, truly being obstinate, ignoring evidence to the contrary, practicing uh, confirmation bias, etc., is not a useful or, um, or, um, or expected uh, process to get at quote unquote truth. And I always like to say, you know, we know that that things in science are not possible to prove. We cannot prove things the way that we prove, you know, one plus one equals two. Um, but we can prove um, beyond a, re a reasonable doubt certain elements of the theory. And so this is just showing Luke, unfortunately, he's got a play button over his face. Um, this is from your, your appearance, where you guys went into a construction of a checklist to get your Big Bang alternative. So I wonder if you can um, talk about what one does if one is trying to come up with a, a Big Bang alternative. Um, in, in your conception, what should somebody do? And maybe as a useful lesson or teachable moment for people like Mr. Lerner, here are some things that should be abided by before you claim that everyone who came before you is wrong and you are solely correct in possession of the truth. Uh, uh, Garrett, do you want to say anything about this kind of Big Bang alternative checklist? Yeah, yeah. So there's a there's a whole bunch of points there. I think um, I think the phrase that Luke and I use when we talk about this is is that you've got to know your enemy, in the sense that you've got to have a proper picture of what the landscape looks like. So you you can't really attack a theory with a very pinpointed sort of 
oh, there's one little piece here that I find that I, I can fight against. The big bang picture is a, is a set of observations that cover an awful lot of observations from the, the last you know, more than a hundred years. And your idea has to have a comment on all of them. And it has to at least match what the Big Bang has said with regards to these points, or and do better if it wants to supersede the um, the, the Big Bang theory as the, the the leading description for how we understand the universe. And this is we, we go from something very simple, right? From the the Oblast paradox: Why is the night sky dark? I mean, it, it it's it's a very uh, deep philosophical kind of thing to think about the night sky. But if your theory um, that you've worked on over there suddenly says that the night sky should be, you know, bright and at a temperature of several thousand degrees, you know that you've already lost. But you've got, so you've got to take your theory and you have to be prepared for your theory to confront all observations, not just the ones that you like. So yeah, that checklist is you've got to work your way through to at least get on par with the Big Bang and then go beyond if you want to supersede it. Yes, and I think that's a phenomenal entree into the next point. And I should say that people have accused Mr. Lerner of you know so-called cherry picking, where you take a um, uh, a flaw, um, a foible, if you will, in previously uh, accepted theory or thought. Then you uh, you assail that as being completely dispositive towards the uh, conjecture in which everything else is built upon. And so uh, with the advent of new data, um, showing here uh, from NASA, ESA, etc., this is JWST on the right data, same field as SMAX field, um, and then HST data on the left. And I should point out that I think SMAX is a small portion of the Hubble Deep Field. Um, the Hubble Deep Field was established in a way to get uh, to basically stare at nothing. It wasn't thought that we'd find evolution of galaxy formation and structure and therefore invalidate the Big Bang, nor is JWST. I mean, if you look at JWST's science rationale, it wasn't to disprove or to prove the Big Bang thanks to Big Bang Incorporated. It was to study the properties and evolution of structures, including exoplanets and including planets in our solar system. So um, we have to look at when there's aspersions being cast at a community, such as a professional community of astronomers, cosmologists, astrophysicists, planet hunters, exobiologists, that the um, it, it is scientifically uh, distasteful to accuse them of having been guided by themselves of the very yeah, um, the very flaw that you may be guilty of, which is cherry picking, confirmation bias, etc. So I'm showing data here now. I like to make an analogy, and and maybe you know you can correct me if I'm if I'm wrong or if you don't agree with it. But um, if we think back to the theory of the origin of the moon. Uh, prior to the Apollo moon landings in the 1960s, uh, this was uh, hotly contested. In fact, it's still not established to the level of, say, the Pythagorean theorem or you know Fermat's last theorem. <laughs> we can't prove things in the context of a of a um, of a mathematical uh, sufficiently adequate format to constitute mathematical proof. We can establish evidence. You know, for example, uh, as Isaac Asimov said, if you believe the Earth is flat. You're wrong. If you believe the Earth is spherical, you're wrong. Uh, if you say that the Earth has a quadrupole distortion, you're wrong. Uh, in other words, we make more and more 
distinctions, but you're less wrong if you say the Earth is a sphere than if it, you say it's flat, and you're even less wrong if you say it has a, a it has a value of a quadrupolar distortion uh, than you are if you say it's spherical. But no one would throw out the origin of planetary uh, solar system dynamics based on the failure of a theory to match the Platonic ideal of perfection that. Uh, people like Mr. Lerner and others seem to require of, of other people's scientific theories while completely ignoring the lacunae in their own theories. So this is one example. The origin of the moon, hotly contested, still not 100% uh, ratified, but until the 1960s when we got physical evidence brought back hundreds of kilograms from the, um, uh, from the uh, moon landing astronauts, uh, we and, and we're going back hopefully very soon to the moon and get even more information and perhaps more that was not really f understood. Maybe the moon was captured, maybe it uh, uh, was formed at the same time, maybe it was an asteroid, etc, etc. And now we think it's from a giant impact, this thing called Thea, um, etc, etc. Now it may be that there's some elements of these other models that are still correct, but we are converging upon a model. And to say that once we went to the moon, that overthrew our knowledge analogously to what he's saying about the, uh, about the uh, JWST data being of higher quality, higher caliber, more refined and more precise. It in no way disparages the Big Bang model, even though it wasn't designed to measure the Big Bang. So I don't know if you have any other analogies, uh, Garrett, um, that you'd like to drop on people for how you refine a model and a departure from its platonic ideal of perfection is in no way a condemnation of the underlying model itself. I don't know, Garrett, do you have any Oh, yeah, yeah. So, sorry, we had a little small glitch there. Yeah, you know, I, I completely agree. I think this is something that people um, outside of science don't realize that that uh, it's always building on what came before and making uh, more accurate and accurate predictions about the universe by modifying your theories. And it's always at every stage you hold up your evidence at that time to, to nature and say, you know, are, are we getting better? Is our model description getting better? And and so, um, you know, just because we now have Einstein's general theory. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay, I lost your audio. Can you, do you hear me, Jaren? Hey. Uh, oh, yeah. I just uh, I lost the last five seconds. Okay. I was just saying that, um, that we, now that we have Einstein's general theory of relativity as a description of gravity, that doesn't mean that we've completely put Newton in the bin. We know the regimes which Newton works in and is accurate in, and we don't need to use relativity. But we also know the places where relativity starts to matter, and that's where we want the more accurate predictions. So it's always building and always gathering evidence, asking nature, how are we doing? Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, yeah. Uh, now, when we look at uh, the, some of the evidence that's claimed from uh, Mr. Lerner's uh, second video, which he made this week and kindly sent to me, uh, this, uh, we can send me messages, by the way, on my mailing list, briankeating.com slash list. Uh, please take advantage of that. Um, and the... <clears throat> um, 
Uh, the video that he's uh, showing here, let's see if this will get to play. I don't know if we'll be able to play it. Um, so in this video, and I put a link to it on the uh, show notes below, uh, he's talking about the problems of, of tiny galaxies and smooth disks. So uh, that brings us to his main uh, complaint and uh, an argument against the Big Bang, which he published in the um, Institute for Art and Ideas News uh, website, and that's a, sort of a philosophy journal in the UK. Um, they host uh, a festival which, um, which Mr. Lerner will be appearing at called How the Light Gets In in a couple of weeks in the UK. I was invited to it. I cannot make it this time. I hope to be there later uh, in 2023, hopefully. Um, and, uh, and I'm quoting from his paper. So he says, that what do we find in this paper? Uh, uh, what do they really show? And he says, lots of surprises and not necessarily pleasant ones. One paper, and, and by the way, that is, first of all, kind of betraying a lack of knowledge about what scientists are actually endeavoring to do. So to say something's not pleasant means that you had an expectation, you have confirmation, and some of your happiness is invested in the uh, confirmation of your pet theory. So I think that that is, uh, again, not a genuine critique of science. In fact, one could accuse Mr. Lerner of, of essentially arguing in the same way because he has been making these exact same arguments, as I pointed out in my first video, uh, two weeks ago now, that uh, since 1991, since his book by the same name, The Big Bang Never Happened. And that was uh, thoroughly uh, debunked, if you will, by uh, Professor Ned Wright, who's a National Academy member, member of the Kobe team, leader of the WISE mission. <laughs> uh, this is an eminent cosmologist at UCLA. Now, what he did in that paper was was comment on some of the, uh, not only the Tolman test, which we'll hopefully get to in a, in a minute, but also on the structure formation. And what was happening at that time, Garrett, as you know, in the 1990s was the Hubble Deep Field was coming out. And, uh, and, and this was supposedly uh, time for panic because it showed the galaxies uh, could form, say, uh, 500 million years after the Big Bang, which according to Mr. Lerner, of course, didn't happen. So it presented a great crisis for Big Bang adherence, but not for him, who believes in infinitely old, not expanding static universe. Um, and so in this thing, he's portraying astronomers as deeply investing their happiness in the, uh, in the confirmation of the Big Bang. So, and then, of course, he famously said that the paper title begins with the candid exclamation, panic. Um, now, of course, I already debunked that. That was in the previous video. Dr. Becky de debunked that. Uh, that's a, a playful pun, which that paper that he's referring to, which is called Panic at the Discs, uh, which is about the preponderance of discs relative to expectations before JWST. Now, um, that, that was also, not coincidentally, also some of these phenomena were evident in the Hubble data, which provides a source of, of great you know, comfort to those that are uh, wanting to believe in the accuracy of the web data. In other words, if you saw something radically different, in other words, you saw there was a disk in Hubble uh, that JWST also saw, but it didn't see it as a disk, then you'd start to truly have some grave concerns, I believe. In this case, we see some similar structures as I showed uh, in this slide here. These images, wherever Hubble and could see and resolve a disk, uh, as these authors went through in this paper, like this disk right here, um, we see it in, uh, in, in this image by Webb as well, except we see it with much higher resolution. And in fact, that should be a good thing. 
because it would allow you to trace the rotation curve properties of the disk, etc., etc. The authors of the panic, so-called panic paper, are really looking at the morphology, how many of these disks are here. Now, if you saw this was a disk with web, but it wasn't a disk uh, in, in Hubble, then you would perhaps start to question. The fact that you see where Hubble had the sensitivity, resolution, and wavelength coverage, you see the exact same uh, structure, and it was adequate to detect a disk at a given redshift. You see the exact same structure in web. There's absolutely no tension between them. And I think that's, again, portraying a, uh, a rather um, uh, large misunderstanding of what the Hubble uh, uh, data show versus the web data. So now I'm showing the, uh, the slide that you made up. The cows are small, but the ones out there are far away. He makes a huge deal, Garen, about the... Uh, the presence of so-called small galaxies. Um, I wonder if you could talk about that. I have some slides that discuss this as well. Um, I wonder if you could explain the Tolman test, which uh, before you do, I cannot resist um, uh, chiding uh, Mr. Lerner uh, for demonstrating uh, perhaps an intentional a lack of knowledge of, of what redshift actually is. And I'll, I'll call that up while you're, uh, while you're working, while you explain this, this issue of the so-called um, small galaxies. Uh, Garen, can you explain uh, what, this, uh, what this means, the this, this, this spirals being uh, far away? <laughs> yeah, so, so there's a couple of issues here. So <clears throat> first thing we have to remember, um, at the moment from these images, all we have are images of these particular galaxies and um, we are inferring their distances. So we, we know from their, their apparent colors that, that we see, we can sort of work out where they are in a particular redshift range, but we do not know specifically where everything is. And to, to essentially nail down the distances, we've got to go and get spectra, right? We've got to get the spectra of these galaxies so we can measure the redshifts. And that will tell us more precisely <clears throat> where these objects are. So at the moment we see in these these particular disks, and we're trying to work out where they are because that because you need that to infer what their actual sizes are, and we don't really know. There's a there's a significant uncertainty in there, and if I could imagine that in the future when we get more accurate data, there will be uh, you know it, it will be uh, that some of them are a little bit closer, some are a bit further away, <clears throat> but it won't be until that point that we will really know the distribution of where these disks are. Uh, because all we have is what's this picture on the sky and yeah. we need more information to, to do those kinds of measurements That's now yeah now one of the key things that uh, i mean i think a, a lot of the argument that's been presented here is over the angular size of objects on the sky right so this is the, the one of the key cornerstones of the the argument in in eric paper etc is that in his static universe, then you have this obvious thing that happens that as you take objects further away, they will look smaller and smaller. Whereas in an expanding universe, the relationship between the redshift, which we infer as, as, a, as a distance, and the angular size of an object becomes much more complicated because the universe has expanded in the time that the light has left from the object to here. So, we, we just have to be very, very careful with, with just the raw images that we have about working out exactly what the size of these objects are. But we do know that for a lot of the objects we see, if the expanding model is right, and these objects are in the redshift range that we're inferring, they were relatively small and relatively bright, which is what we expect 
over you know in a in a in a very hand wavy kind of way in our pictures of our galaxies form and evolve right we we i we, I, we spoke about this when i was in graduate school back in the 1990s that you know galaxies form hierarchically they start off small and they get bigger and bigger and bigger and we also know that the rate of star formation has not been the same over the 14 billion years and the universe was much more vigorous when it was younger driven by the mergers uh, a lot a lot of it driven by the mergers that uh, again um that um eric was sort of um against as galaxies have built up over time and we've got these beautiful charts of the history of star formation we know that the vast majority of stars have already been made and all this kind of stuff so we 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 know that the past was a different country right things were done differently there because because the universe was evolving in a different way so the fact that there was there are small galaxies seen in jwst is is not not a not I, what am I trying to say? It, it doesn't conflict with the overall picture that we have that galaxies start off small and grow larger. Right. Right. In fact, you know, if you, you would, one would have to ask questions about the evolution in a static universe at all. And the age of a static universe, or purported age of a, a wise or any evolution, not to mention uh, the absence of creation of, uh, uh, of, of, of matter that's required to uh, counteract the collapse of a, of a uh, purely matter-filled universe, as purported in uh, Mr. Lerner's work. Uh, which brings me to another effect, um, and, and I have to point out, as I said, you know, he's talking about this here. This is his, what he claims in his most recent video, is the definition of redshift. Now, I don't know about you, uh, <laughs> Karen, or what you teach your students. I don't start by teaching the Tolman test as uh, the definition from which you can extract the redshift, what we call the redshift, as the ratio as defined in his equation here. So I think for a, for a layperson, someone who's not an expert, this might be very convincing. But to an astronomer, this just looks very unprofessional, Eric. And, and yeah. I would say that this um, is intentional cherry picking uh, of, you know, if, if you imagine like, what does it mean to say the size of a galaxy? These things are not like standard rulers that exist. And even if they do, to the extent that they have some uh, large number, he makes this big deal of these things that he calls mighty mouse galaxies, et cetera. Again, a terminology that's not professionally used or accepted. Um, this as a somehow dispositive, that the Big Bang is wrong. Again, if you look back on this image, um, I'll even take it from his own article. There we go. So there are many different types and sizes of galaxies. By the way, some of the gravitational lensing that's exhibited here is a direct consequence of Einstein's theory of general relativity, which presupposes the expansion of the universe is driven by a universe with composition according to ordinary matter alone or radiation alone would be sufficient to cause it to either expand or contract, but not stay static. And of course, that was the reason Einstein came up with this famous fudge factor, apocryphally called his biggest blunder. Mr. Lerner dismisses that, apparently, entirely. Although I don't know how in his plasma cosmology he can explain gravitational lensing, which is concomitant with, and maybe even a lesser um, of lesser relevance for his arguments than the actual expansion itself. And he, as, I, as I'll show later, he has no explanation for the expansion, which he admits. He admits he has no explanation for the redshift. And what he's doing is using these measurements supposedly to prove that the universe is not indeed expanding. Another concept. Uh, I just... Yeah. Could I just add a little point? So, so I, I, I think I mentioned this a little bit later on in my slides. So gravitational lensing, which is an area I've worked in a lot, I mean, th that brings together so many aspects of uh, 
Einstein's general relativity, right? The deflection of light and the cosmological exp expansion. So you need to use angular, angular diameter distances to work out lensing. And they all come together, right? So it's if you start to sort of say, oh, I don't trust the angular diameter distances, but I'll keep the, the gravitational lensing part, it doesn't work anymore. The relationship between redshifts and sizes doesn't work. So it, it fits together very, very neatly. And so if you want to say that lensing, you, I want to play around and do something else. What you're doing is you're, you're multiplying up those extra bits and pieces that you're adding to your theory to get things to work. And that is a path that is very bad for theories. Uh, can, I, can I just do a little historical aside here? Yeah, of course. So what this reminds me of uh, is uh, Fred Hoyle and Steady State. And, and Fred Hoyle is a, is a hero of mine. I, I read lots of his work. I like his stuff, but of course he got into his particular rut on his steady state universe. And what was happening as, uh, you know, the steady state was proposed in the 40s, and as more and more evidence came in, like from the existence of the CMB, the evolution of galaxies, etc., he had to jerry-rig new little pieces everywhere to try and stay on par with the Big Bang Theory. And so his CMB was created by iron whiskers aligned by magnetic fields, etc. And the entire complexity of his cosmological model just exploded, just exploded. Whereas the, the, the standard Big Bang basically is the same equations written down in the 1920s that we use today. That's right. So this, yeah, this, this multiplication of, of I, I will just insert another thing here to describe this thing, is not the way that a good theory develops. Yeah. And when you look at, so no, uh, so George Grubbs is, uh, is, is, is saying, let's stick to the objective uh, truth. There, I'll put George up. Uh, let's stick to objective analysis. So one of my listeners, by the way, you can listen and you can um, send me feedback on my channel, Dr. Brian Keating on YouTube. I take comments and questions on, on um, Twitter as well. Um, no, George, we can't stick to the analysis of the data. It's not casting aspersions to use his own flaws in his reasoning logic and the accusations that he's making. Again, the truth that these papers don't report, this is what he's saying, that we are not reporting the truth. Science is censoring him. He is casting aspersions himself. So unless you want to be totally hypocritical, George, uh, you open yourself up when you ascribe motivations to a class of professionals, not individuals saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying Eric's a bad person, he's evil, he's not. I'm saying here are the flaws in his analysis. Here, here's another one. He purports to be this uh, an expert, maybe self-trained, maybe not. Um, but uh, and 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 that's fine. You can be self-trained. Uh, but um, uh, when I talk about the the critics of the disagreements with the status quo, I just reported from a Nobel Prize winner, Jim Peebles, who has a paper about anomalies in the Big Bang. You can't get more, you know, conventional than someone who's won the Nobel Prize uh, than than that. So I think I think you're missing the point. Um, uh, but but thanks for your comment here. So anything that he puts in his written work or his published work or his YouTube is fair game. Here's another example. He defines here a parsec as being three light years. Now, if I wanted to be, you know, cherry pick, I'd say he doesn't understand the very definition of the first rung in the distance ladder, effectively the first rung in the cosmological distance ladder, which would be used to establish a plot of redshift versus distance. And so he sets up a straw man, which is very convincing to those of you who are lay people. He gets the math wrong. Here he doesn't understand the definition of a parsec, um, and, uh, and it's incomplete. He, he mischaracterized the definition of redshift. 
to suit a, a purpose to claim that there's disagreement and invalidity of the Big Bang model, which is not the common definition of redshift, which is stretching wavelength due to the Doppler shift, which we've known about for 300 years. Uh, it happens for light as well as it happens for sound. And this has been known, as I said, for hundreds of years. So for him to uh, uh, say that that's the definition astronomers use, again, go back to this image of Mr. Lerner's quoting, you know, from, from NASA. Um, do these what's the size of these galaxies? Uh, assume the ones that are the same color are roughly at the same distance. There's huge variation in their sizes. So not uh, accounting for any form of evolution and just saying they're all standard uh, rulers effectively and then saying that's the Tolman test and that's a definition of redshift. Astronomers don't know what they're doing, I think is, is not a professionally acceptable way to, to treat these data. Then he's got this paper from 2018. Uh, he claims that he's been censored. You know, people are hiding the truth. Um, here's the actual definition I provided below, angular size relation, I'm covering it up, here I'll uncover it, there it is. Um, so there's the actual angular size redshift distance relationship. In a non-expanding universe, you would expect to see as the diagonal lines in the, uh, in the upper right uh, plot show, in a non-expanding universe, uh, you would expect to see our steady state universe, this slowly monotonically decreasing size of galaxies as you move farther and farther away, if indeed they had some uniform distance. But notice the plot. This is a professional plot. This is from a textbook on the bottom, similar data. Um, they don't agree, first of all, with the static steady state universe. Second of all, they have error bars. And what troubles me about what Mr. Lerner seems to do, there's never any error bars associated. He's got this miraculous fit to a straight line, a constant angular mean radius of galaxies. No error bars ascribed to it. Now, how this got published in monthly notices, um, you know, is, is sort of a question. I wasn't the referee of it. But it shows two things. It shows that he's not following professional standards. There's nothing about being a critic of the Big Bang that precludes you from using error bars, right, Garrett? <laughs> I mean, anybody can use it, and there are error bars in it, and the sign of a good scientist, I tell my students, is not what you know that you know, it's how you accurately characterize what you know you don't know. And here on the right are professional astronomers showing that there is a minimum galaxy size, which you do not expect, in a steady state static model like Mr. Lerner's. Um, and he's just going on saying, no, this isn't true, and ignoring the data. I don't know, do you have a comment on, on this, Garrett? Well, um, yeah, yeah, I sort of agree. I, I, I did read the, the paper from uh, 20, uh, 2018. Okay. It, it, yeah, so this, this entire question of the size of galaxies and doing this particular test, we, we know if, if the universe was just filled with one meter rulers scattered throughout, then cosmology would be easy, right? Yeah. <laughs> if we, if we, if we ha did have a real standard ruler, but the big problem is, is that galaxies are like people, right? And, and they're, they're more diverse than people because they come from being really tiny to really, really big. And when you construct a sample of galaxies and, and say, what is the size of these galaxies? There are biases in, you know, what can your telescope observe? What sample of galaxies do you have in there? Are they, are they clustered together or are these galaxies out on their own because their sizes are different again? So it's, a, it's, a, it's actually a very complicated experiment to do because you've got to work out right am i really dealing with the same objects if i'm going to declare that these things have the same size that's right and it, it's 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 a uh, well i i haven't followed the the growth of the cosmological distance ladder and cosmological tests these are all difficult tests because the universe has changed over time right the universe a billion years ago 
five million years ago is not the same as the universe today. And so we cannot compare apples here to oranges there very easily. Right. And you say accurately um, uh, and and properly that the uh, the Big Bang Theory was never created, nor was it intended, um, nor does it really include the growth or structure formation of galaxies and individual properties of individual galaxies, whether they're disk or irregular or spheroidal. Um, and part of the reason that JWST is a uh, motivated for its its uh, its you know technological and scientific capabilities, but B was not designed to do cosmology. That's my realm. And actually, Mister Lerner undoes some of his credibility in a different fa fashion by saying that if the Big Bang were true, we'd expect to find uh, a um, an epoch at which there were no galaxies. Um, and in fact, we do, and it's called the epoch of recombination and the formation of the cosmic microwave background. So, how does he deal with that? He's not—he's not unintelligent. He has another theory for the uh, evolution and for the um, appearance of the cosmic microwave background. It's so-called monopole. He has zero um, uh, things to say about its anisotropy, its polarization, or its other properties, which have been studied to you know many many uh, decimal places in just the last 20 years. Um, and again, this is all sort of not, was not maybe as precisely understood when he wrote his book uh, and, uh, in 1991, but since then there's been tremendous growth of our knowledge and improvement in technology, and he still has not updated his original hypotheses, explanation for the CMB, et cetera, et cetera. Next you talk about um, galaxy evolution and what the general properties of galaxies should be. Can you say something briefly about this? Um, what would we expect? Well, so, I mean, I, I think we have this overall expectation that galaxies, the universe started off relatively smooth, smooth, and galaxies grew, so they were smaller and they're getting larger. So we have that overall picture. But what what is what's really needed is the details. This is part of why HST is looking at these most distant galaxies, is because th that initial stage of galaxy formation, it's complicated. And it's complicated because there's an interplay between the dark matter, which is providing the gravitational sort of framework for the universe, and the, the baryons, the gas, the atoms. And th but that gas physics, or gastrophysics as I've written there, that is very complicated, yeah, that's right? right. We're, even understanding it in our own milky way, right? Because what we've got is a galaxy, which is 100,000 light years from side to side, and we have gas doing stuff on the scale of individual stars. And we're trying to encompass all of that. And imagine that in a universe where there's an awful lot going on. So part of the reason that we've got these JWST images is so we can work out what is going on in the early universe to, to tie it to the evolution of galaxies over all of cosmic time. Yes. And so there's a, there's a big uncertainty there. And I'm not surprised that our models of the initial stages of galaxy evolution don't really match what we see in the telescopes. They're not radically wrong. Right. But there are definitely a few issues that we will need to sort out. And you probably, uh, you know this, Brian, that give the, the guys with supercomputers a little bit of time and everything will be perfectly explained anyway, because they will just say, oh, what we needed to do was this efficiency of star formation there and giant stars do this. And voila, we get the universe as seen by JWST. Right. And uh, quoting more from this so-called panic paper um, and uh, and so forth, I think this is instructional to show. Let me uh, swap us back. Oops, sorry. 
Let me go back to our shot together and with the, um, so this is from the panic, so called panic paper, uh, where uh, Mr. Lerner claims, um, galaxy structure and morphology are key aspects for understanding galaxy evolution and will be a key measurement that JWST will make throughout its lifetime. Following the first service mission to Hubble, galaxies started to have their structure revealed in the mid-90s. And galaxy distances became more peculiar and irregular than local. Peculiar doesn't mean it doesn't fit in. It's just an uh, astronomer name for certain appearances of different galaxies. Then they had this um, Hubble sequence, so-called Hubble sequence. When redshift became available, at first with the Hubble deep field, it was clear, so this is when the Hubble deep field, this is 30 years ago, that galaxy structures evolved strongly and systematically with redshift, such that peculiar galaxies dominate the population Z greater than two and a half. So he's talking about there being this panic because we didn't expect this uh, with JWST has revealed this shocking new information. Their paper, which he didn't apparently read thoroughly, uh, shows that JWST not only confirms some of the observations, as I showed you visually, uh, but it also agrees and confirms uh, the appearance of phenomena that J that Hubble saw, and there is regions of overlap where they agree. Here in spheroidals, there's some um, versus redshift. When we look at error bars, including error bars, there is uh, there there is agreement. This is Hubble versus HST. This is exactly what the panic, the uh, paper by uh, Ferreria et al. are talking about. So they're saying that there is some more evolution. Um, there is nothing in these data that cause have anything to say about the origin of the formation of the light elements, which is what we astronomers and cosmologists are referring to when we talk about the quantitative aspects of the Big Bang. There's nothing quantitative or re relative to the Big Bang. There's something quantitative to the measurement, the data um, of galaxies, but not about the underlying theory and the background expansion of space-time, which we call the Big Bang. Yeah. So they go. I, 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 yeah, go ahead. I, I think I, I think I noted on the previous slide. I mean, if 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 the Big Bang was in 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 fear every time a galaxy mo galaxy evolution model doesn't work, we'd be <laughs> terrified all the time. Because the as I said, these things are complicated, and, and more information comes in, and you have to rework your models, etc. Uh, it, it's just part of how it goes. That's right. So, uh, and that's uh, that's a good thing. In fact, one of the things that he quoted and. Uh, and got, you know, these people to call him names, which again, I'm not calling him any names, uh, you know, to those like George that are uh, uh, particularly sensitive to any, any sort of criticism of the ideas. We're not criticizing the human, we're criticizing these ideas. And we can also criticize the tactics and techniques that are used. If you have a uh, viral post in which you accuse astronomers of, of, of acting uh, intellectually dishonestly because they are being, um, uh, or contradicting the truth that these papers are willing to hide, as he says here. Another thing that he said is um, Allison Kirkpatrick, who is a, uh, a phenomenally successful uh, professor at Kansas uh, University, University of Kansas, rather. Um, he said in the second point, this is um, a quote from Allison, Professor Kirkpatrick, where she says, right now I find myself lying awake at three in the morning and wondering if everything I've done is wrong. And then this is a quote from uh, Jack Ryan, I think his article in CNET. Uh, this cherry pick quote isn't in direct reference to the Big Bang Theory. Rel rather, Kirkpatrick is reckoning um, with the first data coming back from JWST about the early evolution of the universe, in particular, it's the galaxies that she's talking about. It's true there are some puzzles for astronomers. So far, they aren't rewriting the beginning of the universe to do so. She has stated, 
that the, that her quotes are misused by Mr. Lerner and changed her Twitter name to Allison. The Big Bang happened, Kirkpatrick. So there's a picture of her Twitter profile. So and to my knowledge, he hasn't uh, apologized for taking that out of context. Again, it's, yeah. it's cherry picked. Is it is it trying to get headlines? Is that unfair of him? Um, you know, it shouldn't should he not be held to the same standard that that others are asking uh, him to be held into? Uh, I think it's only fair. Um, so uh, last couple of quotes, I just want to show you how far back does this go with Mr. Lerner? Well, it goes back pretty far. This is from 2003. I talked about this in my first video. I'll have a link to it in the video description. Uh, this is from Professor Ned Wright, an eminent, incredibly accomplished cosmologist, uh, astrophysicist, um, a professor at MIT and UCLA. He talks about the errors going back um, with the formation evolution of structures. He's claiming that the absence of uh, the need for dark matter is a flaw and that the CMB is too perfect to be a black body. All these have been completely superseded, completely shown demonstrate uh, demonstrably to be completely incorrect. There's 400 sigma agreement that the CMB is a black body and that there are fluctuations in the background intensity, so-called anisotropy, which is part of what I study, and polarization that are completely consistent with not only the Big Bang, but with the cold dark matter paradigm. In fact, some of the strongest evidence we have for the Big Bang for dark matter comes from the, uh, the existence of fluctuations in the cosmic microwave background, a subject that Mr. Lerner is completely mute upon. He doesn't have any explanation for why there's polarization in the CMB, uh, and I guess that shouldn't be surprising. Again, he doesn't have an explanation for redshift. He doesn't believe that redshift takes place, so he, he has to resort to things like tired light, interaction with, with um, matter particles, ordinary matter particles. He doesn't believe in that. Uh, so let's conclude in the last 10 minutes. Um, I, I took you know only one question. I, we, we both have to leave uh, in 10 minutes, and I think we've uh, done uh, yeoman's work if I don't you know, tip my hat to us, <laughs> Garrett. Um, here's Ethan Siegel's uh, general, um, uh, uh, you know, kind of c criticism of the model that Mr. Lerner has. So some of my audience will say things, oh, you shouldn't criticize him, just the Big Bang has all these flaws in it. Well, we've pointed out the details, and actually we glossed over some of the glaring successes of the Big Bang, which which uh, Mr. Lerner uh, has no explanation for the abundance of these elements, except for things that were ruled out in 2003 by Ned Wright, and you can look those up there. He has no explanation for the formation of the light elements, um, and uh, and that hasn't been debunked by by uh, by Professor Ned Wright. But let's get to Ethan's. Uh, so so Ethan is now commenting on. Uh, this is Dr. Ethan Siegel, who runs a very popular um, uh, uh, outreach, and um, he is a, a trained astrophysicist. So uh, Dr. Siegel talks about things are really bad for plasma cosmology uh, advocates fast if they dare to genuinely confront their ideas with observations of the universe. So it doesn't oscillate. We didn't talk about oscillatory universes. Um, in most conceptions, Mr. Lerner, the oscillatory period and his models are in or extremely long, maybe even infinitely long. Uh, so I, I didn't spend too much time in that. He also is talking about for decades, including in the article that is the errors found in his book by Professor Ned Wright, he is talking about these large transverse velocities. Uh, he talks about those that there should be uh, they, they should be prevalent in the plasma cosmology. They don't exist. We don't see it. It would also lead to very large-scale effects in the polarization of the microwave background that I'm an expert in and study. Uh, we don't see any evidence for that. There's strong constraints to rule it out completely based on this. Now, he apparently, according to Ned Wright, I don't know if you knew this, Garrett, but 
but he disavowed his association with Hannes Alvin's plasma cosmology uh, uh, before, but it sounds like he's resurrected it. Okay, um, no, I, I hadn't heard that. Yeah. And then he talks about the cosmic web that performs, this is Dr. Siegel, uh, forms some of the best evidence possible for the universe. In his article, he goes over the simulations. And then he talks about the CMB, the background radiation, can either come from a series of hot objects, which is what Mr. Lerner, or at least Alvin, had claimed, um, as the, uh, or reflected starlight. And you mentioned this earlier, Garrett, it can't be uh, whiskers, polarized whiskers. So those would be seen very easily by CMB. We don't see it. This last observation was enough to falsify Alfin's idea more than a year before he even proposed it. The plasma cosmology was literally dead on arrival. So that's Ethan. I have a list of other uh, problems, as I've already said. There's no explanation of CMB polarization, no explanation of CMB anisotropy. Uh, again, this is the Nobel Prize in, in 2006. Um, no explanation of blue shifts and transverse velocities, and no explanation of redshift. <laughs> he does. He says all processes can be explained by lab-tested physics. This is his slide. You can see Mr. Learn in the upper uh, right. Um, I'll move it over. Hopefully, you can see it. Um, and uh, there he is. Move him over. Uh, except for the Hubble process. So he's saying everything can be explained, or tested at least, or explained. No, he's saying he can explain all the cosmic, so-called cosmic processes that otherwise seem to indicate expansion. They can all be explained except for the Hubble process. <laughs> that's a pretty big exception. Uh, that's literally the foundational pillar on which the uh, expanding universe is predicated by people who didn't mm -hmm. want to believe in it. Like even Lemaitre didn't want to believe in it. And actually Alfane, who Mr. Lerner supports, purportedly or did, he hated the idea because it seemed to apply a biblical con uh, congruence between the biblical Genesis 1-1 narrative. So Mr. Alfane, or Dr. Alfane, Nobel laureate, he was against the Big Bang on, on extra-scientific, non-scientific, ascientific, um, agenda-driven ideas. Um, so, but anyway, he, Mr. Lerner, cannot explain the, mo the key ingredient in all of uh, cosmology, which is that galaxies, every galaxy with the exception of 10 or 20 handful of local ones, all seem to be expanded. That's a pretty big gap, wouldn't you say, Garrett? Yeah, yeah. I, again, it's, it's taken with the totality of the evidence, right? Again, the, 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 the framework for cosmology is relatively simple. The ingredients that you add for Big Bang nucleosynthesis, etc., again, relatively straightforward, and you explain a whole wealth of observations and having to add all these other little bits and pieces to try and explain CMB over here or you know galaxy evolution over there it, it's it's not good for theories right it, it's mu multiplying the factors that are unnecessarily yeah so in, in, in reality we need the scales of justice for theories and we need to weigh them based on how well they explain their evidence and, and you know and the, the Big Bang does very very well which is why it's hard to unseat that's right. Not because we, not because we love it. Lots of people <laughs> hate it, but it it works. That's, That's the right. point. So um, the last thing I want to comment on is he doesn't have a plausible explanation for abundances, and yet his adherents, his proponents, etc., including people in the chat room, are saying, oh, "Well, okay, you've explained, you know, the the support for JWST observations that aren't." inconsistent with the Big Bang. You've explained that the properties of galaxies are consistent between 
Hubble and JWST where there is sufficient technological overlap and wavelength and sensitivity and angular resolution. Um, uh, and so that would be a huge hurdle that the Big Bang model, if you like, to whatever extent it does make predictions about evolution or, or structure formation, could have failed but did not. Um, we. We know that Mr. Learn doesn't have an explanation for abundances, but he's pointed out that astronomers don't understand the lithium problem. This I get a lot, a lot of this stuff. Lithium problem is the key thing. We're hanging our hat now on this. Okay, so here's uh, abundances. Here are the elemental abundances measured by uh, multiple dozens of different teams with different telescopic tools ranging from the uh, early part of the evolution of the universe uh, using the cosmic microwave background that I study and the Planck satellite uh, studied, um, and predictions and observations from astronomers looking at stars in our galaxy and even our own sun. And these are for four or five of the lightest elements on the periodic table and their isotopes. So this is showing primordial helium abundance, helium-4. Uh, there's another L, um, isotope of helium called helium-3. We actually use that to cool down our detectors to sub-Kelvin temperatures. Um, deuterium, which is heavy hydrogen. I'll have a video, by the way, on my channel about you'll see me drinking um, uh, deuterium oxide, which is heavy water, and see if I live or not. Um, and then there's lithium. So in, uh, and there's also hydrogen, uh, which is not shown on here. This is relative to hydrogen. So for hydrogen, helium, isotope of helium, of hydrogen, and isotope of helium, four different uh, uh, isotopes or, or elemental abundances, four of them agree, and you can't even see the error bars. Now, the one that's known the worst, with the bigger green band sort of at the bottom, is lithium-7. And it is true that the Planck value, if you will, uh, differs from the uh, stellar abundances and observations by several sigma. So this is, you know, a few parts in a thousand chance of being a statistical fluke. It could be real. But the amount of information that, first of all, in the three and four, including hydrogen and isotopic hydrogen uh, two, that those preponderate, the, the preponderance of evidence is that we have an exquisite understanding um, from multiple avenues, looking at the sun to looking at the cosmic microwave background. A difference in time of 13.8 billion years, difference in scale of, of 10 to the 20th power. This is incredible, and we should be proud of it. And Mr. Lerner is pointing cherry-picking, as some have called it, the one value which is discrepant, but the reasons for its discrepancy could be manifold and related to deficiencies, lacuna, in observational astronomy having zero Zero absolutely to do with cosmology. Garrett, do you have anything to say about these abundances and whether this causes uh, a, you any loss of sleep or panic? No, no. So, uh, yeah, I think a lot about the lithium difference, but lithium is a fragile element, and we don't understand all the pathways that it could be processed through stars and multiple generations of stars. So maybe this is telling us more about our lack of understanding of stellar evolution than it is of the production of heat, uh, lithium in the Big Bang. That's right. But, you know, lots of people, lots of people are thinking about this, and uh, you know, when the answer's there, we'll all go, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, and the last thing I want to say is, you know, he also talked about the Hubble crisis, the Hubble tension. I, too, would like people to stop using the term, you know, crisis and, and Hubble tensions and, and so forth. But, but in reality, uh, um, we understand from phenomena measured at early times, 370,000 years after the Big Bang. We have an observation of the expansion rate, a prediction of what the expansion rate should be 13.8 billion years later. And it agrees to within 10% 
of the value measured by local objects in the expanding universe, which Mr. Lerner has no explanation for, but for the redshift distance relationship over a variety of different stars and different stellar objects from globular clusters, tip of the red giant branch stars, uh, type two, uh, type one a supernovae, and from Cepheid variables, going out over a whole host of ranges and scale from megaparsecs to gigaparsecs, all the way back to the Big Bang. So late formation, early formation, zero explanation in Mr. Lerner's model, complete agreement to the 10% level. And even Jim Peebles says that is, even though it's an anomaly, in other words, these two different methods disagree at the 10% level. It's a stunning triumph, perhaps one of the most confidence-inspiring ideas and measurements ever made. And that's what we do as scientists, right, Garrett? We are observational, and we are driven by empirical and epistemologically humble and having humility, and I think we expect that from critics as well. It's not that we don't like criticism. We welcome it. Sometimes, as Nobel laureate Jim People says, it provides you some information avenue to further refine and build up credulity and confidence in your model. Professor Lewis, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Um, uh, I know we both have to run, and uh, I think it was great. Uh, keep the comments coming. I have a link to more information. I'll put a link to my previous videos, and you can check out Mr. Lerner's videos, and I'm sure, Mr. Lerner, if you're listening, you'll have uh, some response. But uh, I don't find debate particularly um, uh, valuable in the sense that uh, there's nothing that he can't say live that he can't say um, you know, on a uh, on a channel. And he actually is going to be debating uh, Professor uh, Priya Narayanan um, at uh, at this How the Light Gets In Festival. So she is even more capable than 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 I am, at least. I won't speak for Professor Lewis um, of defending the Big Bang or at least uh, uh, providing the same argument. So look for that video. I'm sure that'll be up at some point. And uh, we're in capable hands, and we welcome constructive criticism. But I think ascribing and not being apologetic and properly humble in your approach is not the best uh, the best approach. Anyway, Garrett, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. I'll put some links and uh, videos in the slides up uh, as well. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Bye. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic.